Hey, it's Melvin, one of your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts. Whether it's your first time tuning in or you're a longtime listener, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever. Reviews are the lifeblood of the podcast world, so if you want to help us out, it'll take only a moment of your time. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy the show. Hi, my name is Melvin, and there was not a dry eye in the theater. Welcome to Cinematic Doctrine, a non-spoiler Christian movie podcast where we sit at the table of cinema and eat. Tonight we'll be dining on Lulu Wang's The Farewell. Premiering at Sundance in the U.S. dramatic category, The Farewell is, perhaps, the most American film you'll ever see. It's an amalgamation of tense struggles and hardships while exercising patience and understanding amidst difficult, multicultural situations. If that doesn't sound like the United States of America, I don't know what is. It sounds unbelievable, too. The film is largely spoken in Chinese, and the entire cast features Eastern actors, but when you put into perspective the melting pot that is the United States and the mere fact that director Lulu Wang identifies as American, it makes perfect sense that the film can be recognized culturally as an American film. But all of that's verbiage, since the most important characteristic of The Farewell is that it's a very human film. But to pick that apart, why don't we get into the synopsis, rating, and dig in a little deeper. Billy's grandmother, Nai Nai, is dying. Stage 4 cancer, and she hasn't been told a thing. No diagnosis, no procedures, and all Nai Nai knows is that she has a terrible cough. In fact, everyone is visiting for one last goodbye. But Nai Nai is tricked into thinking it's all for her grandson's wedding. Billy questions the morality of it all, to engage a massive, family-wide lie, rather than simply tell her grandmother she has cancer and say their goodbyes. The Farewell is rated PG for thematic material, brief language, and some smoking. I'm not so sure what thematic material means, but I figure it means that the movie is very emotional and effective while doing it, so I guess it's a bring-some-tissues alert. I vaguely remember any language, and it's nothing too extreme considering the film is PG, but again, I can't remember much of any language. Smoking? Well, people are smoking inside, outside, so there's that. It's relatively constant, along with some drinking, but that's about it as far as drug use is concerned. Before I started talking about the synopsis, I was talking about some of the difficulty in categorizing this film, but also talking rather confidently that the film is an American film through and through. And I stand by Lulu Wang on this one. I think most people would agree, and to that effect, it sounds strange to make a declarative statement such as, I stand by you, especially when talking about a movie, but there's a reason for that. Hollywood and filmmaking in general is an industry. It brings in money. Lots of it. And while storytelling is a primary facet of film, as far as production companies are concerned, the money is what matters the most. It helps pay for new projects, keep the industry afloat, all with the hope of bringing in more money. This is both fine, in the sense that everyone needs to be compensated for their work, and more money means more work, but a little dicey when it comes to compromise. For instance, fearing that The Farewell would be too alienating for large audiences, American studios asked Lulu Wang to think about adding in white actors, even recommending that the lead female be played by a white woman. Other times, they would ask questions during her pitch such as, is this an American film or a Chinese film? of which she felt was the equivalent of asking a person, are you American or Chinese? A similar experience happened in China. When proposing the film to Chinese investors, they were bothered by how American Billy felt, 
demanding that if she wanted them to produce the film, she would have to make her character feel more Chinese. And before I continue, I want to springboard off that to assert that this is one aspect in which long-standing cultural norms can put individuals into a box. It presents itself in both the United States and China. For the United States, it's suspected that a story that feels too Chinese wouldn't connect well to American audiences. But toss in a white person and it'll do much better. Or in China, how it could simply be too alienating for a Chinese market to connect with someone who is a little too American. Whether it's political, cultural, profitable, it feels wrong to think that someone would have to change their story solely on the basis of a character not being white enough or Chinese enough. That's even more problematic when Billy's character is supposed to be natively Chinese, an American citizen, and a little distant from her cultural homeland. She's a second generation character who helps us learn about some cultural differences between typical American life and typical Chinese life. To change this character to white would seem inappropriate, and to make the character more Chinese would take away from the legitimacy of her character. Two compromises that would make zero sense considering the character Billy needs to be. But I digress. Feeling stuck, Lulu reserved the story to a stack of projects she would save for later, or never finish at all. That is until she was given the opportunity to perform it on This American Life a weekly radio podcast show where they choose a different theme and tell different stories that feed into that theme. Asked if she had anything in a backlog she wanted to get made, she turned the then-script for The Farewell into an episode for This American Life. The show went well, and she had a wonderful time working on it, but soon experienced an existential crisis. She worried that perhaps she had chosen the wrong line of work, that the strict rules of filmmaking, Hollywood, and cultural engagement through film was so limited to tried-and-true marketable methods, it would be a much easier path and all-around more enriching experience to pursue radio and podcast storytelling as a healthier and easier way to tell their stories. Then came the calls from producers all over the industry who had listened to this episode of This American Life, and they fell in love with it. A ton of people wanted to produce it as a feature-length film, and feeling more confident, Lulu demanded that if they wanted it so bad, she should be allowed to preserve the story in its entirety. So how does it fare? How is The Farewell? Well, it's very good. To put it simply, it's unrelentingly emotional, whether in comedy or tragedy or both at the same time. It's impressive how easily the unbridled wit of each character seamlessly ties into the ever-present dark underbelly of The Farewell. How simple it is to forget mortality and enjoy the festivities, no matter how fake they may be. Although this film isn't necessarily a black comedy, not like The Art of Self-Defense, there are a lot of funny moments that almost seem inappropriate to laugh at. In fact, I remember wanting to laugh during a scene, but thinking to myself, I know this is funny, but I can't laugh or else it'll ruin the other people's experience in this theater. I mean, everyone else was quiet. Except for one person. And they were losing their mind. They were laughing so much. Probably the only person laughing in the theater. But I felt a connection with them because I was going, oh, thank goodness someone else finds this really funny too. Lulu has a brilliant vision that extends far beyond the characters themselves, or better yet, the characters that carry a single scene. If two people are talking and we're meant to listen in on them, we can't help but look in the background and see what sort of ruckus is being caused. We can't help but notice how many bright colored balloons are taped to the wall. We can't draw away from how beautiful everything looks, even when Billy is sitting cross-legged on the floor weeping to her mother. It's heartbreaking, heartwarming, and cathartic. 
I think it's important to say that by the end of this review, you won't hear me declare anything about this film, at least in regards to the morality of the situation. I don't believe the film is worried about convincing its audience that, under certain situations, it's moral to lie to your dying relatives and not tell them about their condition. It's also not trying to say that it's inherently bad. In fact, while the film is about this bizarre, all-too-real situation, it's more concerned about peeling apart the many other ways in which we deceive one another, tell half-truths, and live with lies our whole life before learning those closest to us, at times, can't be trusted. Side note, by the time I finished typing this review, I actually do declare something, but that's just how the writing process goes, I suppose. Anyways, back to the review. The Farewell isn't a postmodern story, not by any means, but it has an awareness that the things we may grow up on, the things we thought were true, may not be the case. It doesn't struggle exclusively with this idea, although there is a hint of this, as a lot of what shakes the film is the constant revelations that Billy, and us, are coming to terms with. So the question of morality isn't meant to be answered, at least not within the runtime of this film. The film is asking a question, but it also demands an answer. It takes apart immediate lies like the one the whole film is about, as well as long-lasting lies, such as the ones we tell ourselves so we can go to bed. Lies like, everything will be okay, Melvin. You're gonna make it. This new job is gonna work out. And what if it doesn't? Did I lie to myself just to keep going? If I did, I not only put myself in harm's way, I put my wife in harm's way as well. Oh, we're making the right choice. It's a weight we're willing to bear. And what if it grows too heavy? What if we grow tired? What happens when we lose sight of what's ahead, stumble, and get crushed beneath this terrible choice we made? Look at us, we're family! Are we? When we get together we feel alienated, distant, vulnerable, and nobody can forgive one another for something so far in our past we can't remember! There are plenty of other directions to take this, to engage this struggle, and think intently about what it means to lie, who we lie to, and what impact our lies have, but sometimes it comes down to whether we're willing to pay the price or not, and unfortunately, we choose to think we can. Now, here's the part where I said I wasn't going to declare anything, but then I thought I should probably speak into this a little bit as far as scripture is concerned, so I guess I'll be speaking a little bit into it. In scripture, we know that Satan is called the prince of lies. We know that the eighth commandment is not to bear false witness to our neighbor, of which bearing false witness means to lie. But look at that. It says to our neighbor. That's interesting, especially when we think about how commonly this passage is quoted and that the latter part is omitted. Usually it's interpreted as it's always wrong to lie. Yet the full commandment is don't bear false witness to our neighbor. Before I dig into that, I want to bring up two passages in particular where people are both found to lie and, strangely enough, are subsequently rewarded. First, let's look at Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. In this passage, a new pharaoh has come into power, and in fearing the growing Jewish population, demanded that the midwives kill every son born of a Jewish woman, while the daughters would be left alive. Fearing God, the midwives disobeyed Pharaoh and let the children live. Pharaoh demanded an answer, and in response, the midwives said, These Jewish women are simply more vigorous than Egyptian women. They give birth much faster than we do. In response, God blesses the midwives. Another time in which someone is blessed for lying is Rahab. In Joshua chapter 2, Joshua sends two men to spy on the land of Jericho. 
They meet a woman named Rahab who, upon taking them in, is forced to hide the men on her rooftop and cover them. Knocking on her door are two officials asking where these men have gone, to which she says, They've left through the gate, last I saw them. I don't know where they are now. As the officials left, Rahab spoke with the two spies from Joshua and said she knew that the land was to become theirs, that their God was the one true God, the one in the heavens above and on the earth below. Following this, Rahab pleads that her home would not be destroyed in the coming destruction of Jericho. As such, when the time came, Rahab was safe from the collapse of the city walls, and the Lord blessed her and all in her house. Both of these instances contain the act of lying, and both of these have blessings attached to them. But they also feature something else. In both stories, there is a character that is not being what one may call a neighbor. In the story of Exodus, Pharaoh is seeking to murder the sons of all Jewish families, in response, these women defy the evil intentions of this man and fear the Lord. They choose to do what is right in response to those who are far more powerful than they are. Same in Joshua, we witness Rahab lying to two men with the intent of murdering Jewish spies. In fact, one could say a key characteristic between these two unneighborly characters is the fact that they are pursuing an act that would be wholly and completely in opposition to God's plan. So what is a neighbor anyway? In response to this question, Christ answers with the parable of the Good Samaritan. For those who don't know, the parable is about a man who is robbed and beaten left for dead. A priest sees him and walks on the other side of the road. A Levite, who is essentially a Jewish priest, does the same thing. He sees this man dying, ignores him, and keeps walking. Yet, a Samaritan man, a man considered less than these other two men, is alarmed. He runs to the man, covers his wounds in oil and bandages, puts the man on his animal, and makes haste for the nearest inn. He then pays the innkeeper and says, Whatever else he needs, I will repay it. The man who showed compassion and mercy to this dying man is the one who was the neighbor. And therefore, we can learn that, for the most part, anyone who is doing good to us, honoring God, loving us, caring for us, would be someone we shouldn't lie to. They'd be a neighbor. If they truly care for us, it would behoove us to confess nothing but the truth to this person as we know now that they will do good to us, or, at the very least, can trust that they will do well with the truth we've given them. To lie to them would not only be wrong for them, as they may do the wrong thing on accident, it would be wrong for us, as we would likely not get the best response. We wouldn't get what we need when we confess something to them. As far as the farewell is concerned, it brings to light something that is very real, very human, and very hard to entertain. The act of lying to your family, especially on such a degree as this film is concerned. Yet it appropriately understands how there are very difficult situations we are proposed with when the temptation to lie, for the wrong reasons, can be huge. Sometimes they feel like they're backbreaking. Sometimes they feel like we can't stand to defy it. Like we can't just go up to this person and say, hey, I heard you have cancer and everyone else in here is lying to you. That can be really hard to fight that temptation, to give in to what everyone else is doing. And that is not to say that this is a gray area, as I don't think there really is a gray area here. But it's a recognition of how something as simple as lying, a borderline cultural trademark of America, from its politicians to its citizens, can be a very loaded and burdensome struggle. And with that, thank you for tuning into this episode of Cinematic Doctrine. If you've seen The Farewell, what did you think of it? Did you enjoy its brilliant balance of comedy and tragedy? Or were you growing tired of reading subtitles every five minutes? If you're listening on Cinematic Doctrine's website, let me know in a comment below or with an email to cinematicdoctrine at gmail.com. 
And if you're on Letterboxd, I have a list compiling every movie I've reviewed on Cinematic Doctrine with direct links to those episodes. If you'd like to support the show, jump on over to Cinematic Doctrine's Facebook page and be sure to follow for updates on episodes, movie news, and my usual shenanigans. You can also support the show by leaving a review for Cinematic Doctrine on your respective podcast app. Also, slight change to the format. I will no longer be teasing what the next episode is. For instance, in every episode up till now, I have ended with, next time we'll be reviewing such and such's movie. From now on, it'll be a toss-up. But I'll have little hints on the Facebook page about what movies I'm covering, so again, be sure to check that out. All of this will be available in the show notes. Until next time, stay cool. Want some Cinematic Doctrine swag? You're in luck! We've got 3-inch Cinematic Doctrine logo stickers exclusive for Patreon supporters. Perfect for your travel mug or laptop. Head over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine, link in the show notes, and choose the independent theater tier. Doing so will net you other perks too. But let's be real, the podcast stickers are the coolest perk. So get yourself some podcast stickers by supporting on Patreon.